This episode's a good one. We've got a cybersecurity expert that has been in the room when people are responding to various cyber attacks. He's got some great stories. I love listening to him, and I know you will too. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup and I have with me a guy who once again has astonished me with knowledge that, why does he know this stuff? He's going to solve my office chair problem. Prasada Maliandi, how's it going, Prasada? I'm good, Curtis. I'm good. So, yeah, let's talk about you needing a new office chair. <laughs> so Just, just it, show, it show may- the listeners. Just just squeak. Well, let's, yeah. So, this is, so, you know, in a in a podcast... <laughs> My mic is picking up my squeaky office chair. And so either I need a new office chair or I need to lose a few pounds. One or the other or maybe both. But uh, so you brought up, what was it? It was Crandall? Yep, Crandall Furniture. Yeah, Crandall Furniture, which is they're, they're apparently repurposing, uh, you know, all those office chairs that nobody's using anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they buy chairs, they refurbish them with like new foam, they fix the lift mechanism, sometimes they replace the arms, and then they resell it at a discount. Yeah. And it's crazy yeah. how expensive office chairs are. Like some of the yes. high end ones are like a thousand, eighteen hundred dollars. Who wants to spend that on a chair? Like I get it, you spend a lot of time sitting in a chair, just like you do sleeping in a bed, but still it's a good chunk of money to spend when you can go to like your local office supply store and pick up a cheap chair for like ninety nine dollars. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think this was ninety nine, but it wasn't much more than that. I don't I don't have if, if I had to guess, I probably got it from Costco. Because I get many other things from Costco, right? Um, but yeah, and we'll I had see, one uh, of those chairs. I had yeah. one of those chairs as well, right? Where I was like, "Yeah, it worked well." And then I'll, once the pandemic hit and we were working from home, I ended up getting some wellness dollars from my employer, and use that to get myself a nice standing desk and an office chair. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I got the same wellness money. And I spin it on a webcam. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, this is for my current employer. That oh, for your current employer. Yes. Oh, that's right. We because we were at the same employer. But you're saying you get yeah. wellness money from your your new employer, um, and uh, which is you know just as good a time as any to mention that this is an independent podcast. We're not representing uh, you know any employers or non-employers in my case, and um, you know that uh, the opinions that you hear are ours. And also, uh, be sure to rate us, uh, uh, you know, by uh, going to your favorite podcatcher, scrolling down and giving us all the stars and comments. We love seeing comments from listeners. And if you'd like to be a part of the conversation, I can be reached at WCurtisPreston at Gmail or um, WCPreston on Twitter and also LinkedIn.com slash IN slash MRBackup. That is Mr. Backup on LinkedIn. And you can find me. And... Uh, with that, we'll turn off to our guest at this moment. Uh, he's uh, specialized in cybersecurity for over 20 years and is a member of FBI InfraGuard, which is a 
in a, a group that I didn't even know existed, but it's a partnership between the FBI and the private sector for the protection of U.S. critical infrastructure. He's now the CEO of Black Swan, a company that strives to democratize enterprise-level security services, which one of my first questions is going to be, what does that mean? Welcome to the pod, Mike Saylor. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me the guy that should be celebrating my recent auto repair victory for Sana Maliandi. <laughs> so it's a success, Curtis, the saga, the ongoing I, I am, repair saga. I am, declaring, <laughs> I am declaring it a success after all that work. Uh, you know, now there, there are going to be some purists that are not going to like the the solution um, because it's not a long-term solution, but we'll see how long-term it is. I, you know, long story short, I was having a misfire and it said it was either the EGR valve or it was going to be a a head gasket. And I don't want to spend a ridiculous amount of money, like $2,000 to replace head gasket on an engine that has 200,000 miles on it. So I did some research and selected the um oh I, I replaced the egr valve that didn't fix it and i um uh see if you were a regular of the podcast you'd have heard all this, all this already <laughs> uh and uh, i decided to use something called steel seal which was the best rated of the various uh of the liquid sealing products uh any mechanics in the room are like oh no don't do, use that everyone's cringing that's exactly what i'll say yeah uh but um you know, and it wasn't exactly easy. You know, I had to replace all of the coolant with uh, with um, distilled water and put it in there. And, you know, but I got to say, I've, you know, I've driven it all over Tarnation since repairing it. No code, no nothing. Uh, it was an intermittent code, but it was definitely, you know, intermittent enough that it, I would have had it by now. So, so I'm declaring success. That's awesome. I know you were very worried and you were trying all these other mechanisms before having to worry about the head gasket. So crossing my yeah. fingers, I hope it works out, but we'll see. If, if I get yeah. another, you know, 20,000 miles out of it, I'll be ecstatic. If I get 100,000 miles, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Because basically the next step is, I, you know, I've priced a, an engine for the car and that's 4,500 bucks. Yeah. Um, and Because I'm not going to spend $2,000 just yeah. to replace a head gasket but, in the car. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it worked, and I'm glad you persevered, Curtis, and you did not give up. I really am excited about our guest this week. He's going to bring a unique perspective than than you know than we've ever had before. Uh, he has been an attorney for almost 50 years and counsels a wide range of companies on international matters. He founded Privacy Rules, a global alliance of technology and law firms dedicated data privacy compliance, and is also the host of the Data Privacy Detective podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Mike Saylor. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what does that mean? <laughs> uh, well, I, know, uh, I saw so, on your website that it says you wanted to democratize enterprise-level security services. Sure. Well, I think in, in you know, simple explanation is that we're trying to provide uh, enterprise class services, the you know what what the big boys pay for, Fortune 50, Fortune 100, mm-hmm. and make it affordable and scalable and flexible enough for smaller organizations, small medium sized businesses. Uh, part of our mission is to provide that enterprise class service to what we consider underserved markets. So mm-hmm. uh, education, 
family offices, uh, credit unions as an example, um, but also understanding that in each one of those situations, you've got a variety of uh, business sizes. So you've got a five-person credit union and you've got a billion-dollar credit union, uh, and they both need uh, help understanding and applying um, cybersecurity controls and, and services. So what happens today for those small customers, right? Or like the five person credit union, like how do they even approach cybersecurity today? Or what does their solutions look like? Uh, they usually don't have one. Um, <laughs> they even have to, uh, in, in a lot of cases, have to outsource their just normal help desk, you know, hardware support. And they're relying on that, you know, that technology expertise to uh, assist them in cyber to the extent possible. Um, but that's changing, um, and, and it has to. Uh, a lot of uh, services and protections and controls that any organization today rely on, like, like insurance, uh, in order to qualify for cybersecurity insurance policies, you have to demonstrate these you know, kind of uh, good cyber hygiene practices, uh, whether you do it internally or you outsource it. Uh, and so in order just to even get insurance, uh, you have to uh, spend some money to check some of these boxes. Um, and they're just, there's, there's not a whole lot of solutions out there, options for them to, to go with. Interesting. Um, and let's talk also a little bit about uh, FBI InfraGuard. Because uh, mm -hmm. like I said, I, I, did, I didn't even know this. Infra, I'm really glad to hear that it exists, but I didn't even know it exists. Uh, what, what, what does that look like? Sure. Uh, well, so it started in the late 90s. Uh, I think the, the first chapter was uh, um, in the mid 90s. Um, and the, the idea is uh, for every FBI field office, um, there should be an InfraGuard chapter. And the objective of the chapter is to tie the office into the community, thereby uh, expanding its eyes and ears, uh, but also uh, helping elevate the intelligence and awareness of the organizations in the community uh, for the things that the FBI and that community is working on. Uh, so some, some bi-directional uh, intelligence sharing, which really didn't happen for a long time. It's probably only been in the last five or six years that that's, that's really uh, become more valuable. Um, prior to that, you, you might get an InfraGuard notice uh, a few hours or a day before something comes out on the news. So you really weren't ahead of it too much. Um, but so now there's, there's 45 chapters of InfraGuard throughout the country. Uh, there's an InfraGuard National Alliance that kind of manages all those independent chapters. Um, and the chapters are made up of people from the community uh, across all sectors. Uh, kind of initially, it was all technology people. Uh, so 90, 90 plus percent uh, membership in InfraGuard were people in, you know, CIOs and engineers and help desk people. Uh, but today we have nurses and doctors and farmers and um, people that work in infrastructure, water, dams, uh, federal government, um, agriculture, I mentioned, um, nuclear. Uh, so each critical infrastructure section, sector, uh, has an InfraGuard sector chief uh, at each chapter uh, who is responsible for going out and uh, not just recruiting others from that sector uh, to kind of strengthen the, the mix and dynamics of the chapter's uh, membership, um, but it's also uh, both a feeder into the FBI uh, for intelligence and threats and awareness of what's going on out in the community, 
but also the FBI's ability to to uh, to share with them so that they can do their job better, uh, get ahead of threats, uh, be more aware. Uh, so it's been a pretty pretty effective. Um, partnership over the years. Uh, I helped stand up the North Texas chapter in the late 90s and I've, I've been sector, I'm currently a sector chief over healthcare. I was a sector chief over technology initially. I was the president of the chapter um, and we have a, a pretty strong uh, showing uh, in our company uh, as far as InfraGuard goes. Our CFO was a, a past president. She's also the past uh, national regional representative over I think three or four different states. Our COO was the president of the Houston chapter. He was also a national regional rep for a period of time. Uh, and then everybody in our company pretty much is a member. Yeah. Um, and there's, similar, there's a similar uh, organization for the Secret Service. They, call it, they used to call it the Electronic Crimes Task Force, of which I'm also a member. Uh, and then both of those are kind of related to the, in Texas, we have the North Texas Crime Commission, and they have subcommittees like Cybercrime. And then uh, the Fusion Centers, that police department's, uh, fun, uh, operate um, in North Texas. There's the Collin County Sheriff Fusion Center, uh, from which I'm also a fusion liaison officer. So tons of intelligence sharing, information sharing, uh, both to support the community, but also naturally with what we do, uh, that feeds really nicely into the value that we can uh, we can give our clients. That's awesome. I actually, like you said, Curtis, I had never heard about this. And Mike, thank you for going into details because that's actually a really cool program. Like I didn't realize that the FBI connected in like this in sort of a systematic way, mm -hmm. right, to all these other organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've we've come a long way since um, the days of <clears throat> the cuckoo's egg, which I'm I'm assuming you've read a cuckoo's egg or the cuckoo, mm -hmm. the cuckoo's egg, I think. You know, because in that story from Cliff Stoll back in the day, when he contacts the FBI about a cyber attack that's happening on his infrastructure, they're like, well, did they steal anything? <laughs> right? They didn't. They really weren't aware of the concept of a cybersecurity attack. So I, I'm glad to hear that, you know, things have come a long way since that was the 70s. So, you know, whatever. And, uh, it's been, it's that, been a while since then. Kind of along those lines, uh, the other benefit of that is uh, similar to the situation where, you know, there was an event. Uh, we always preach, uh, as far as incident response goes, you've got to get ahead of that so that on game day, you know what players you can call into the to right. uh, onto the field, and uh, you know who's going to show up. And so, uh, you know, we're very adamant about establishing those relationships with law enforcement and subject matter experts and vendors in the community, so that when something bad happens, you're not leaving a voicemail, you're not having to figure out the right person to talk to. And so InfraGuard and the, uh, the Secret Service organizations give you the opportunity to actually go to, they have chapter meetings, and a lot of times they're at the, the FBI's field office, which is also kind of cool. Um, and so you get to meet people and exchange business cards and go to coffee and have their cell phone number instead of a mailbox number and, um, and find the right person to talk to so that you can put them in your plan and you know who to call and they already know you, they've met you before, it's not a first date type of situation. So when when... When things are going bad and the, the house is on fire, uh, you know who to call and um, they know who you are. Yeah, I preach the, the same thing, Mike. And, and, and so it's but it sounds like InfraGuard is an is a organization that I can contact, go to these meetings that you were talking about, that, that, it, that it could be that liaison so that I can start to form those relationships. Because you're right. It's like, uh, you know, just reaching out to, to the FBI blindly. Uh, <laughs> You know, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a potential future event 
that might happen, right? So it sounds like InfraGuard can be that liaison then? And, and you're right. And they do have, uh, they have uh, speaker, um, what do they call it? Um, you, can, you can sign up to be a speaker, uh, like as a resource, a subject matter mm -hmm. expert. But then the FBI also has uh, speakers that can come to your event. And so very often you can pull in that, that law enforcement uh, perspective to, to your message and your content. And they'll bring their own slides and, you know, whatever data they can, they can share publicly as far as current events and statistics. And it's, it's usually a pretty good uh, value add uh, as far as content. And, and sometimes it's a, it's a draw. Uh, you know, people may not want to just come see me talk. But if it's me mm -hmm. plus the supervisory special agent over cyber, then all of a sudden it's interesting. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, they come yeah, just for you, Mike. Come on. <laughs> there's a lot of value. There's a lot of value in membership. Um, each chapter has their own dues. Like our, I think our chapter, it's twenty-five or fifty dollars a year, uh, but that also pays for, um, you know, food at an event or you get discounts to go into some conference. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of kind of cool ecosystem um, you belong to once once you uh, become a member. I'm surprised this isn't publicized more. It's right. infraguard.org, I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D.org. Yeah, I'm all uh, over it. I think it. you can sign up online. The, uh, the application process is, is, can be kind of long, anywhere from you know, 45 to 120 days. Uh, they do a cursory background, and then each office has to do kind of a vetting uh, to determine if uh, you know, membership is for you. Uh, but then uh, you're invited to kind of a new member session and you get to meet people, the board, uh, other members, uh, FBI. And one of the things that I'll mention is, so for every InfraGuard chapter, there is a full-time FBI agent that is your liaison. And they, mm. so they kind of manage from the FBI side everything your chapter's doing, even though your chapter has its own board of directors and event planning and all that stuff. There's always a full-time FBI person uh, at your event, at your board meeting. Um, kind of the liaison for anything you need that the that the bureau can can help you with. That's awesome. Good. Just a follow up. I know you talked about sort of establishing those relationships, right, with other people who are in the chapter. Do they do things like tabletop exercises or other things, or is that kind of outside the scope of this group? So the the InfraGuard membership well and, and different chapters do different things like the louisiana chapter is they're they're kind of known for um uh anti you know maritime anti-drone capabilities so there are people at, in that chapter that are involved in how to protect businesses along the river hmm. uh, from drones and drone strikes and surveillance and all that good stuff and so they they do exercises pretty often and they have some really good events and there, the Houston chapter is good. New York chapter, not only do they do um, exercises, but they have a podcast. So they, they broadcast things. I, I want to say it was at least weekly, maybe monthly, but I think it's weekly. And they're very well known for their multimedia. Um, and so their different chapters kind of specialize and do their own thing. Okay. Um, but then you're also invited to bigger events. Uh, so um, I know that there's kind of a, uh, a large-scale FEMA event uh, every now and then, and so we're you know, we're invited to participate in that. But as a chapter, as a community, we don't. The North Texas chapter has not gotten together and said, you know, we could probably add a lot of value if we start to collaborate and, and participate together. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. this time we help, you know, this 
this company or this set of companies, maybe this this sector like technology or healthcare. And you know, next time we focus on something else. I think it's a great idea, but uh, I haven't seen it done. But it's okay. definitely something that they're open to doing. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, I'm, I I was just looking at the site, and I I want to say so 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 persona two areas of California where there's like a really big city and then a smaller city next to the big city. One of these places has its own San Diego chapter, I'm sorry, San Diego field office of the FBI and therefore a chapter of this organization. The other one does not. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? No. <laughs> there, is a San there is a San Diego field office there's not a Santa Clara field office. There is not. A, there is not a. There's not even a Southern Bay Area. There is just San Francisco Bay Area field office. They they didn't. So, they didn't so field they the have, South Bay. Go ahead. They also have satellite offices, and the FBI does. So, for example, um, Frisco, Texas, is kind of northwest of downtown Dallas, but you know, within thirty minute driving. Uh, so the Dallas FBI headquarters is in downtown Dallas, but they have a satellite office in Frisco and they have a satellite office in Fort Worth. Uh, all of that is considered under the purview of the Dallas field office. And our North right. Texas chapter goes from Waco to Lubbock and Abilene. Uh, I'm sorry, um, just east of El Paso all the way out to Shreveport. So technically, like quite literally, all of North Texas <laughs> is part of one chapter. However... We have some of the uh, members that are out in like the Abilene area, as an example, that feel disconnected. Like we can't keep driving to Dallas every time <laughs> you guys have an event. We want to start our own chapter. Uh, and they got enough support for that where they did a feasibility study and uh, an interest and they were going to help them build their own chapter. I'm not sure the status of that, but uh, that is an option if, if you find enough interest and membership and you know it's feasible um you know they'll they're, well, they're open to starting other chapters well sadly there's no one in the south bay area that knows anything about technology or yeah not at all security. yeah <laughs> yeah anyway so well, let me just ask you one, one final question about this topic and then i want to move on um and that is there is a debate when, you know, as I've been continuing to research incident response having to do with ransomware, there is a debate as to when or if to contact the FBI, right? Or just law enforcement in general, but in the US, the FBI. What's your opinion on that? My opinion is as soon as possible. However, um, you know, it's not always up to, to us. And us, by us, I mean, you know, technology leadership, you know, whether you're the CISO or the CIO, unless unless you're chartered to do so by executive management. Uh, I always suggest that whoever the IT leadership is, you know, we're just we're just putting out a fire. Uh, you know, what, whatever the incident is, we're putting out the fire. So from a technology mm -hmm. perspective, our job is to recover. From a business perspective, you really need to defer that to your legal counsel or or your whoever your executive is or your insurance company. Uh, but your insurance company is going to say involve law enforcement as soon as possible. Your legal counsel, gotcha. whether it's internal or, or, or outside counsel, is going to want to know more. Um, but at, at the end of the day, uh, and, I, and I've, I've seen this from from a lot of different perspectives, because I'm also I also do expert testimony in court. So if this ended up in court, you know, one of the things that that benefits you from contacting law enforcement as soon as possible is, is a phrase called due diligence. Uh, 
So when when we talk about, all right, so you guys screwed up, but how diligent were you in trying to prevent this? How diligent were you in responding to this? And how diligent were you in, in asking for help from everybody that you could possibly ask for, for help from? And how open were you in um, in understanding and communicating what the problem was? And so if, if in any of those phases uh, you're perceived as less than diligent uh, and possibly... Um, you know, hiding something or, or, or trying to cover something up. When it gets to damages, if, if this lawsuit goes to damages, that's where it's going to come back on you. Because uh, everybody that, that goes through an incident, obviously you're guilty of having gone through an incident. You didn't do enough right. of something, which is almost impossible, but you know, when you're in court, it's kind of black and white. And you, at the end of the day, the fact is you had a breach. You had an incident, and it, it resulted in these things. Um, all right, so there's... You get a judgment for that. All right, well, then we go to damages, and some of that's black and white, too. California, especially, you know, for every record of California citizen, there's, it's defined. But uh, on top of that, uh, so that's statutory, but then the, the judge can say you guys were not diligent in protecting, responding, communicating, and, and because of that, I'm going to assess these additional fines. And so uh, there's a lot to consider, and back to the tabletop exercise, that's when you need to start talking through this is how this should right. actually go and someone's going to go when do we call law enforcement and we should look at the people in the room that would typically have that answer and let's get that in writing ahead of time uh, and put right. that in our plan as uh, as part of uh, how we respond to stuff you don't want to be the the the, the rogue uh incident response cyber security person just randomly deciding to call the fbi uh, right this needs to be decided up up front now, I've been so, through some incidents, uh, just real quick, where uh, the incident was something illegal. And management said, you're not reporting that to anybody. We'll handle it internally. But there are certain cases where you are a mandatory reporter having right. identified certain types of things. Um, and it's kind of up to you on how to handle that. But I would suggest, uh, even if management said, don't report it. That's your, your life you're dealing with. If they find out you didn't report and you knew about it, now you're going to jail regardless of what your boss said. Um, so I would suggest there's ways of doing anonymous uh, reporting and then just capture that activity as evidence that you did report it. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things to consider when you're, you're responsible for responding to stuff. Uh, and in addition to that, you may have access to things that, that require you as a mandatory reporter for doing something. I was interesting you brought that up, Mike. I was just reading a I think on Twitter or Reddit or something like that, where people were saying, like, as a programmer, right, if you're asked to do something which doesn't seem right, right, and the company gets caught, in the end, you're sort of the one responsible because you wrote the code, right? You did something when someone told you to do something illegal, potentially, right? And it's still your neck on the line versus mm -hmm. like no one ever really gets like penalize like that for saying no to doing something illegal. Right. And so it applies in various cases, including responding to being told to do something illegal. Uh, the one thing I did want to ask you, Mike, just going back to the question Curtis asked about sort of reporting, how do you feel that companies have done in being transparent about cybersecurity mm -hmm. incidences? Well, I think that's a double edged sword because it could seem like they're not being very transparent when really they just don't have a clue of what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's the case the majority of the time. 
we got ransomware. How did it happen? Someone clicked something, I guess, but they really don't know. Or that's what they were told, even though that's not maybe really how it happened. So I think understanding and understanding comes from you know, information. Well, how do we get information? Well, you've got to have the right technology stack. You've got to have the right visibility and people and all reporting. And if, if any one of those areas is lacking, then your ability to really know what happened uh, is diminished to some degree. So uh, I think there's two, there's, there's, there's a couple of perspectives. I'm not just going to say there's two. There's, there's the one where they just really didn't know what happened and they're, they're sharing what they, they know in whatever way they know how. Uh, in a lot of those cases, it's because they tried to address it on their own. They didn't bring in that law enforcement or outside help or a professional firm or, or what have you. They just said, we had a problem. We're going to accept the, you know, the, the fact that it happened and pay our dues or you know, whatever the consequences are, and we'll move on. And uh, so there's that perspective. The other one is companies that truly can't or have decided they can't take the reputational risk of divulging what happened uh, some of that might be privacy or contractual, like you will never tell people that our network was uh, compromised because that because we rely on you for these other things. And so clients could be impacted by by your incident, you know, their their business or service, too. So uh, depending on how your business functions and how you how complex it is with with providing services or data to to clients or third parties, uh, you may be limited in what you can say. Um, but I think what you're getting at is, yeah, there are definitely companies out there that will deny altogether that there was a comp. I don't, so, you know, some, some bad guys put all of our customer data on the, on the internet and you, you can see it. They, they will still deny to the nth degree that <laughs> they were not compromised, that they did not get that data from us. And I was actually in a case like that with a telecom company. Uh, the secret service called us and said, actually the FBI called us first and said, we're seeing your client data on the internet. And um, this was in the, the late nineties. Uh, we're seeing your customers' data on the internet, and when we started looking into it, they were all of our internet customers. And so we went back to our internet provider and said, "It looks like all of this data is coming from you." And they denied it. Well, <clears throat> Secret Service got involved uh, due to jurisdiction; it was different states and different things. And so we went. We actually went to that company uh, on site with the Secret Service and said, "We're here to talk about this, that, and the other." And well, it wasn't us. Uh, it, it didn't come from us. Well, all the data that we're seeing, and it's not just related to you, it's got metadata in it that said it did come from you. No, it didn't. Well, we're not leaving until we talk to somebody. So they put us in this conference room and locked us in there, didn't let us out to go talk to anybody. And we had to, like someone would come in and say, what do you want to, what do you need? And we would say it and they would go out and, and look uh, or, or collect that for us. And uh, sometime during the day, I asked if I could plug into their, their wall jack and, uh, so I could have internet access to, to check email. And they said, sure. Well, I started run, running a, a network sniffer uh, capturing <laughs> network Of course traffic. you did. <laughs> and, and back in the day, they were using uh, ICQ, the, the, chat, the yeah. chat app. And I was capturing in plain text everything they were saying. And it was all about, ha ha, we've got them locked in the conference room. They'll give up talking to us <laughs> at some point and just go home. We're not going to give them anything. Um, Tell Bob that he's safe, you know, that his screw up is we're going to brush it under the rug. And so I remember this, this little secret service lady, uh, and I say she really was little. She was like five feet tall. Um, her name was Kim. She kicked the conference room door open and it was, it was the door that opened in, but she kicked it out. I mean, she, <laughs> she knew how to kick a door. 
And she kicked that door and said, I need the executive team in this office right in front of me in the next five minutes or people are going to jail. And she took control. And, nice. and it was probably uh, maybe later that year we actually caught the hacker that did that. His name was Matthew Freeze. He, uh, we caught him in Corpus Christi with the sheriff's department. Uh, he's in, I think he's still in jail. Um, but I went down to interview Matt Freeze uh, and uh, thinking I was going to have a chance to talk to him about how he did it and get the, the, the verbal confirmation that it did come from this company because they're still denying it. And uh, I was there for nine hours waiting in line of uh, more important people than me to talk to this guy. He had hacked NASA talking. and Department of Defense and <sighs> Library of Congress. All these other people were there to ask him how he did what he did and get his confession. And so I ended up giving my list of questions to a Homeland Security guy. Back then it wasn't called Homeland Security. It was uh, uh, ICE. Um, and right, I, so I got I got his confession that way, but uh, I, I'm not even sure why. How we? Oh, uh, people saying that they weren't hacked, even though you've got all the evidence yeah. points. That right, they right. Yeah, so. Well, that's that's a great story with the, with, <laughs> with, a, with a great climax. I love the the agent kicking down yeah, the door. Uh, yeah, that must have been something to be there. <laughs> um, so so let me let me do a change attack here. So. You know, let's say we're a company. We have done from a so we you know we have we have an incident response plan, right? We we've we've decided whether or not we're going to contact law enforcement. We um we did all of the things that a cybersecurity company asked us to do in terms of prevention and 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 all of those things. Um, what what one thing I am interested in is obviously we, we spend a lot of our time with talking about ransomware, right? And the and I understand that ransomware really in the end is just a payload of a much bigger cybersecurity problem, right? Um, what I'm seeing a lot is that I, I'm reading that now, I think it was like more than 90% of what we used to just call ransomware attacks are really exfiltration attacks accompanied with ransomware, right? Um, and so I, I have a couple of, you know, sort of questions about starting with, you know, given the way the way a typical ransomware attack happens, right? You've got your the the initial um, uh, I forgot what actually what the world calls it the the initial access broker, right? You get the initial access broker, then you get somebody that's in there and they start probing around, right? They start seeing how they can, you know, how they can get around. And then my understanding is as soon as they can, they start exfiltrating data. So my question is, it's sort of two questions. Other, you know, beyond the usual, you know, there are some things, you know, there are some things that we know we should all be doing, right? You know, in terms of password management and MFA and, um, you know, all, all of those, you, you know, and, and, and uh, patch management, right? Um, can you think of some things that a company that wants to take that next step, things that, that, that could either stop um, lateral movement, number one, and then, and then just as importantly, if not, if not more importantly, exfiltration of data? That was a really sure. long question. Sorry about that. 
and, and I had so many things I wanted to chime in with that I've, I've lost some of them. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad when you said typical ransomware, you didn't go down. They they clicked on an email because that's not typical anymore. That's that's statistically the probably the higher probability of success. But in a lot of cases, it's just that user that gets compromised, not not the right. whole company. So you're right. Typically, the the enterprise uh, scale attack is uh, via some either access broker or the ransomware campaign uh, has you know their own uh, squad of pen testers that are finding ways into environments. But you're right. right. So typically, it is access to the environment that then, you know, as far as the phases of attack goes, then they start uh, the reconnaissance. Uh, to answer your question about um, how do we how do we address the exfiltration? piece, uh, my favorite response is it depends. And I say that a lot in a lot of different scenarios. And, and, uh, and it's for good reason, because it really depends on the organization. And so each company needs to go through an exercise of figuring out what's important to them. And where is it? Because maybe your data is already exfiltrated, it's out in, you know, a cloud somewhere. So I'm not even have the attack your company anymore. I just have to go figure out where your data is and attack that company. Um, and, or maybe it's a partner or whoever. And there's tons of examples of, of bad guys figuring out where the, where the important stuff is and making best use of their time and resources. So, so it really does depend on the organization, uh, understanding your technology stack, your architecture, your culture, uh, and then obviously where is your stuff? Is it data? Is it a system? Is it a service? Because uh, that's what bad guys are going to figure out. When they're doing the reconnaissance, they're looking for you know, who is this company? Because in a lot of cases, they, don't, they didn't specifically attack you. Uh, they, just, they were running some tools and found a vulnerability, and they picked at it, and now they've got access to some company's network. So they've got to figure that out first. Once they figure out who you are, they want to figure out what you do. Uh, where, where is your important stuff, including your backups? Uh, and then to some degree, they're also looking for your financials and if they can find a copy of your insurance uh, policy, all these things. Well, all right, so depending on the company uh, and, and your organization's particular situation, um, there are ways of addressing uh, the data exfiltration problem. One of those is, well, let's put, our put tighter controls around our data, and that includes like data integrity monitor, file integrity monitoring um, restricted access, network segmentation, firewall rules that throttle, you know, data uploads or alerts of, of doing so. Um, but I did want to address one, um, one comment you made, how do we prevent this from happening? And I really think people need to stop thinking about preventing it and start looking at ways of identifying it as soon as possible with either automated or human response as soon as possible. Uh, and then how do we collect all the information we need to make sure that we understand how it happened, what they did, and, and capture what we did to respond to that. And so that's very important uh, for a lot of different reasons. One, if you put too much uh, emphasis on prevention, then a couple of things are going to happen. One, you've, you've invested a lot of money that could be more appropriately used in identification and response. Uh, two, you're very likely going to become complacent thinking that you've got everything in place you need and that's not going to happen to us. And then lastly, a lot of those preventative controls don't do the data collection necessary to figure out how things happened um, and 
And we get asked a lot. We had this incident, and all we need to know is, is there evidence of data exfiltration? <laughs> because that's all we have to report. So what? We had ransomware. So what? We had a breach. If there was no data taken, then we don't have to report it. Okay, great. Well, let's look at your technology stack and, and the things that you have that would have collected that information and they didn't have anything or what they have wasn't configured well. And so we didn't have the information to, to determine whether or not data was exfiltrated to any degree. Uh, so we could see the, the network connections and the sessions, uh, but we couldn't see uh, the data throughput or, or even what the data was. So um, in that case, though, Mike, is it you have to assume worst case that there was personal data or other things that was exfiltrated or is it I don't know what was happened, so I'll just say I don't know or nothing well, there, happened? <laughs> there's a couple of things there, too. Uh, so, I mean, fundamentally, all of your data should be encrypted as often as it, it, as it can be uh, at rest in transit um, so that if it is exfiltrated, you, you, you were diligent. <laughs> in protecting your data so that if it was stolen, there's a small likelihood that it's even usable. Well, not usable within, you know, relatively, you know, 10 years or whatever. Right, yeah. um, right. So encryption is very important from a diligence perspective. Well, then in the absence of evidence that data was exfiltrated, um, and this is something you have to work with your legal counsel on, how do we then word our communication uh, to employees or clients or even the state or regulatory agency about what happened. And very often it is uh, stated similar to uh, no evidence was found to support. Right. Right. So right. it's not yes or no. It's we didn't find anything that said it did happen. Yeah, we've um, talked about a number of those incidents. Yeah. yeah. We, we have no evidence that the data was stolen that because we had really bad tracking yeah. mechanisms that would that would tell us that data. And it and it also depends on the threat actors. There are some threat actors that have a uh, you know a good reputation if you can have one uh, as a as a threat actor that says, you know, they they live by their code and their code is, you know, if we steal your data, uh, you have let's just say 3 days to acknowledge that you were breached and then you have uh, and then we'll we'll submit to you an offer uh, so your ransom note and if so, first, if you if you acknowledge that you are, were attacked and you contact us within three days, then we won't put your company on the wall of shame, which is a public <laughs> indication that you were compromised. And, and people that know us know that we have some or all of your data. So we won't do that. And then we'll give you the ransom note. And if you pay that ransom note or if we start these negotiations and we get we go through this process and you pay us, then we promise to, st to destroy all your data and, and keep it confidential and. We'll even give you good tech support while you're trying to recover. Um, and so I've been through a variety of, of, of those types of incidents, seeing that the gamut of uh, bad actors that aren't very well organized and don't care, uh, all the way up through the very organized ones that, that operate like a, like a business and they've got good customer support or you know, as good as it can be. Um, but uh, I will say that you know, there is a trend towards data exfiltration with ransomware. Uh, there's there's a, still a large, um, large occurrence of ransomware where they don't care about your data. They just want to make sure you're all locked up and that's what they're going to use for leverage to get you to pay. Because there's also the, the on the backside of that, even though threat actors are very risk averse, there is less risk from a, a consequence perspective, a prosecution perspective of just compromising your network and, and encrypting your stuff. 
sure, I'll get in trouble. Sure, I'll get jail time and all this stuff. But if I also steal your data, especially if it's regulatory data, healthcare, PII, whatever, that's additional charges mm -hmm. if I get caught. And so in a lot of cases, similar to the data access brokers, you also have um, uh, network access brokers. In addition to them, you also have the data brokers. So you've got the and so it's this whole ecosystem. All right. So who do I know? Who, who can I pay to compromise your network? All right. Got that. I have the access. Who can I pay to develop the payload? All right. Got that. So payloads in there. Ransomware is running. And now we've got their environment locked up and we've got this data set. I don't want the data set because I don't want to get caught with it. So now I got to find a data broker that will buy it from me who knows how then to kind of like diamonds, right? I bought the raw diamonds. I got to find a diamond cutter and then I got to find a diamond distributor and you know, everybody makes their own cut. Um, so there isn't, there are, uh, a, there's still a large volume of, of attacks where this eco, this whole ecosystem comes into play and, and you're just, depending on where you, where you catch the attack, you're dealing with different, um, threat actors. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I wasn't aware, um, you know, it sounds like it's kind of like felony murder, right? Where, you know, like, um, it, it makes it worse, right? You yeah. killed somebody, but you killed somebody in the commission of another felony. It makes yeah. it, it makes it worse. Um, the, um, um, and so like, even if you didn't mean to kill them, right. That's my understanding. Like, even if it, if it would otherwise be considered like accidental homicide or whatever, that because yep. you, it happened in the commission of a felony, it makes it felony murder. Um, that, that is an interesting concept. Um, I, 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 by the way, Mike, it, even though it sounds like maybe I was saying differently, I completely agree with you with sort of the, the assumed breach concept, right? That you need to spend, you need to be just as good, if not better with detection and response uh, and recovery than the prevention aspect, right? Um, you know, having said that, there's nothing wrong with, with an ounce of prevention, right? Um, and that's why um, I, I just, it, it bothers me like on, on one hand, we talk about some of the advanced things that you could do to, to help, but most people, um, you know, such as preventing, preventing lateral movement between systems that don't need to have lateral movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're right. There's a cost in, uh, of doing it initially. There's a cost of maintaining that. And there's a cost of, of you know, well, cybersecurity is always a pain. Right. The, the more security you have, the harder it is to do your job. Right. Unless yeah. you're the, the, the cybersecurity guy. Um, the um, uh, I had a point. I was on my, <laughs> somebody went to a point and it well, seems to have that's, uh, that's lost why That's why convenience stores are robbed more than security stores. I see, I see what you did there. Yeah. Um, the um, the uh, let's talk about response and recovery um the which is generally what we end up talking most of our time about here what do you think is you know we talked about the things that you need to do in advance establishing a communication with the fbi or other law enforcement um you know establishing a relationship with somebody like yourself um you know so so that you're not you're not making that conversation the first time in the middle of an incident what else do you think people need to do to be ready to respond uh, in a cyber attack? Well, I think uh, tabletop exercises are a great way to kind of ferret that out for your organization. Sit down with as many people in your company as you can. 
I mean, a lot of IT departments are like, let's just do it with us first so we don't look stupid in front of everybody else. And that's fine. You know, you know have, a, have, your, have your, you know, red, blue or red, white, you know, scrimmage game. Um, but then involve as many people as possible. And I've seen this be so successful. Um, and, and even involve your insurance broker and your outside counsel and invite the FBI, invite the Secret Service. Uh, have this exercise and, and pick a topic. Um, and whether you do it yourself or, or you know, look for a moderator, uh, and there's a lot of good moderators out there. I'm, I, I do these all the time. I'm considered a breach coach. But then there's, there's even cybersecurity law firms that will, uh, will facilitate uh, a good tabletop. And the idea is let's pick a topic, ransomware or intellectual property theft or uh, our data center gets hit by a plane because we're close to an airport. Whatever it is, pick a topic. Invite as many people as you can and walk through the scenario. Um, you know, somebody clicked the link and, and, you know, they came to work and their desktop icons are all changed and they can't use anything. Well, and then we got another call and then, all right, well, let's start with who do they call? Who does an employee talk? Who is their phone number? Is their name? What if email doesn't work? Uh, so who do they call? And then what does that person do? How do we, how do we assess the situation yeah, which is you know, kind of phase one of incident response is how do we categorize this event into an incident? Is it a non-event? Is it critical? Uh, and then that then based on your plan would indicate who else needs to be involved once we categorize once we categorize the uh, the incident. Well, then having as many people there as possible is is valuable two ways. One, maybe you don't know who needs to be in, involved, and you can start asking all the attendees uh, who are the right people uh, because. You know, I sent this email out five months ago and nobody's responded who the right person is, but we're all in the same room. Let's work it out. But at the same time, uh, you're going to get some people going, I would have had no idea that's what's involved with doing X, Y, or Z unless I was in this room. And I'll tell you a funny story. We were doing a, a tabletop for a, a company. Uh, I think they're in healthcare. And part of the scenario was uh, threat actor used the contact us button on their website to say that's how they said you know we have all your data call us in three days um, and here's the information to do so and so that was part of the scenario so I uh, I asked well who's in charge of the website and there were two people in the audience and they said we are and I said well what would you do if you got that email and they said we'd probably delete it because we wouldn't believe it was true <laughs> well okay well maybe you shouldn't delete it anymore you should you know forward that to the security team and let them figure that out and they said good good call uh, good so, but there were there were a lot of people in the audience that said, "I'm glad I was here because I would have had no idea that all these moving parts and this this level of effort and this stuff would is necessary for responding to whatever the incident was." Well, then, well now it's a good time to ask the insurance broker who's on the call or in the meeting, "When do we contact you?" And they're going to say, "Well, as soon as possible." And, and from from an employee uh, company perspective, I think there was a misconception that calling the insurance like as soon as possible is somehow going to affect your premium. Like, we're going to pay more because we mm. called you. Um, and that's not the case. They want to be involved as soon as possible to help you make the right decisions because right. you may be using third parties and buying, you know, going through this this expense that uh, may not be reimbursable. You know, you might not be able to get paid back for that if even if your claim is, is accepted. But at the same time, the insurance company wants to know about how diligent you're being and they want to be involved in the process, and that's going to help you determine, or hopefully, help you uh, towards getting your claim approved. Um, and then they're going to be the ones, uh, along with your legal counsel, helping you make the right decisions about how to communicate 
situations to third parties and outside, you know, clients and what have you, but also internally. And we walked through this, just adding this real quick. All right, so you've got this incident, and and we did this, uh, we did a tabletop with an engineering company, and they didn't do anything we suggested. And then like six weeks later, they got hit with ransomware, and they were down for two and a half months. But uh, that's the other important thing about tabletops or or any type of assessment. You really need to take the remediation seriously. Uh, and take action on those things as soon as possible. Because if, if we found them, the bad guys have probably found them too. But one of the things that we found out in a tabletop or that came to mind was communications, specifically internally. So this engineering company got hit with ransomware. They were down. Nobody could do any work. And they couldn't even email people. All right, so do you have a system uh, that collects personal emails and phone numbers? Do you have a system where people can call in to get status? Like, is it a snow day? Uh, are we off for the day? Uh, is there an incident? When are we going to hear an update? That kind of stuff. But then do you also have a policy that says, in the event of an incident, you are prohibited from discussing this stuff on social media. Don't put on LinkedIn, oh, we had an incident today. I, got, I guess I got the next two months off. Um, that you're, You've got to contain that and, or at least uh, uh, define the messaging for that stuff. Get ahead of it. Uh, go ahead and make your templates for internal and external communications. Like, what are we going to say? Well, you should plan for that now uh, yeah, right. instead of wasting time during an incident, you know, trying to figure it out while the house is on fire. Hmm. Um, so having said all of that, um, you know, incident response exercises are very valuable. Um, and even though you may want to have your own little huddle to figure out, you know, how well are we before we invite the rest of the, the crew, um, you should invite as many people, internal, external, subject matter experts, partners, um, um, as you can uh, to get everybody uh, playing on the same team, on the same field. They show up for at the, at the right time, um, and they have an idea of what the playbook is. Wow. Yeah, wow, that's, yeah, very detailed. And like you mentioned, it's sort of plan ahead of time, right? I'm sure there are so many companies where it's like, hey, ransomware hits or we have an incident. It's just IT and the security org that's dealing with this, right? But like you mentioned, there's so many other folks involved and just knowing who those people are, especially if you're a large company, you don't know. Like one department doesn't know who the other department is even, right? We, had a, that. <laughs> we had a situation where for, for four days we were operating under the un, uh, assumption that they only had a uh, $3 million cyber insurance policy. So we were restricting uh, who was involved to restrict the expense and the overhead. Uh, and it wasn't until we were on a, uh, I think it was like 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday, we were on a, an update call and we were talking about this $3 million policy. When someone walks, I could see them walk behind the person talking on the camera and they go, we have 6 million. <laughs> like, what, what do you mean? We have two $3 million policies and nobody knew that. Nobody else but this person knew that. And that completely changed. We're like, well, we need to start getting more resources in here. You know, call mm. call the big brand response teams, and all. So that really changed the game, because that just happened to come out in the meeting without you know <laughs> everybody else being really aware yeah. of. Uh, the other bad part of that situation, uh, unfortunately, was that uh, they had six million dollars in coverage, but what they didn't also know is that it was a self-funded insurance policy. So they were paying into that over time, and the insurance company said, we'll cover you uh, if the day comes, but then you've got to pay it back pretty much. And so um, they didn't know that either. So a lot of things came Read your policy. I bet, they, yeah. I bet they found that out. 
Um, well, listen, um, wait, I'm, did I mute myself? No. No. There, I muted. Okay, sorry. Um, listen, Mike, we could talk all day. I, I, I love the stories, good. by the way. I, I, you know, you, you know me, Persona. I'm, I'm a storyteller myself, and I, I think nothing, nothing tells the story like a good story. You know, nothing, nothing drills that point home uh, better than a good story, for sure. Um, and I, I love hearing from these real incidents, uh, you know, what, what I'm hearing. So I, I like, you know, the things that I picked up here, first off, I like the amount of time we spent on the FBI, uh, and for guard program. Uh, I definitely want to look more into that. And I think the listeners should look more into that. And I like this idea, uh, and of, of using them as a way to establish those communication channels before an event. Um, and I like the idea of, well, you know, we, we, we always promote the idea of, of tabletop exercises and, um, you know, in, in my world, you know, we call them DR, DR exercises, right? Back before the, the cyber world was also attacking backup systems. Um, so I, you know, th I think this has been a great conversation, Mike. So I, I want to thank you for coming on. Certainly. And, uh, persona. Once again, as always, you with your with your wisdom. Anytime, Curtis, and I hope you'll be ordering a chair or at least uh, browsing chairs soon. And Mike, thank yeah. you for the info. I, yeah, it's always fascinating hearing these real life stories because that's something that you don't hear about, right? What did people experience and what was it like going through? It's just like what you read, like reading the cuckoo's nest or cuckoo's egg, right? It's like. Those are the types of stories that are interesting that you learn from, especially new people in this space like myself, right? Where it's like, hey, what really goes on behind the scenes and what does it take to recover? So thank you for sharing. Sure. Certainly. Yeah, I've got stories all, right. all day. Yeah. <laughs> so Maybe like we'll have you and, be back on. Yeah, yeah, you and me over beers, Mike. Nobody yeah. would ever get the word in edgewise. And once again, I want to thank our listeners. Uh, and remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all.